1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
0: The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish life. We are Irish
2: Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times with me, Dominic Coyle, standing in for Kieran Hancock. This week, we look at who's listening to radio, Ryanair's efforts to put the cancellation fiasco behind it, and has Ireland been whitewashed in its ambition to host the Rugby World Cup? Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash business. Later in the show, Barry O'Halloran will examine Ryanair's latest results as we ask whether it has put its recent woes behind it. But we're going to start with the latest figures for radio listenership and the increasingly challenging market for music radio. I'm joined in studio by Laura Slattery and Barry O'Halloran from our business team. Laura, it's been a tough few years for radio, not least the demise of Phantom or TXN as it became, but the most recent JNLR figures offer some cheer. Who's recovering ground and what do the numbers tell us about the state of the sector?
3: So yes, the the recent uh, listenership figures they came out last week and they will have um, prompted a few sighs of relief um, it, within Two FM and Today FM, um, two stations that haven't you know have been having the best few years, and um, they they sort of consider themselves rivals in lots of ways. They're national stations. They're I would say music led. Uh, if not perhaps uh, the totally music-focused stations that uh, some music fans would like them to be. Um, but 2FM, of course, historically, uh, you know, suffered a big collapse uh, since 2010 when its uh, most uh, popular presenter, Jerry Ryan, passed away. And at that point, it had about a twelve percent market share, and it's been, you know, it's dwindled uh, quite substantially since then. And they've had major schedule changes, and have had to tried to refocus the station. Ironically, at the at the very market that's 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 said to be the hardest to reach, which is younger listeners. Um, the Most recent figures show that it did increase its market share again, and that some of the changes seem to be uh, working. Uh, Breakfast Republic, for example. Um, is now listened to by um, more people than Ian Dempsey is over on Today FM. Um, 2FM's market share, though, it's still, it's 6.7%. So as, as, as I just mentioned, it used to be 12%, and now it's 6.7%, and it's on the way up. But the, the head of 2FM, Dan Healy, doesn't expect it to go up, you know, too much further, too quickly. He's, he's looking at maybe 8% by uh, 2020, and the reason is, um, it's a very crowded market there. There's a lot of stations out, there's a lot of competition, but also there's a lot of competition from sources that aren't other radio stations. And mm-hmm. this is a problem that Today FM has as well. Um, a lot of uh, the younger listeners are um, choosing other platforms, although perhaps not in as great as a number as we might expect. Mm-hmm. The, the, the popularity, things like Spotify and podcasts, may be slightly overstated, but it is still there in the background. Uh, potentially causing a bit of a, a, a thorn.
2: You mentioned, we'll come back maybe to Spotify and, and, and some of the options there in a minute, but uh, you mentioned the 6.7% that, that uh, 2FM has risen to. Of course, in Dublin, both 2FM and Today FM are facing even more challenges. The figures there are lower and, and the challenges bigger in number and also bigger in terms of market share.
3: That's right. I mean, it may you know, there's, there's be a, a, a sort of a start. It sounds weird to use the word historic in the context of something that only began in 1989. But of course, the commercial radio market in Ireland, that's when that began. Before that, we just had Radio uh, 1 and 2FM. And, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the corporate descendant of that first commercial radio station is FM 104, uh, which these days is owned by Rupert Murdoch's uh, News Corp through Wireless Group. And they have a 12.1% share of the Dublin market, that is. Mm. Um, and uh, they're, the, they're the sort of the, the second biggest station in Dublin, which I, I always love telling people behind Radio 1. Um, because a lot of people who it, it wouldn't be on their radar at all as a station uh, Communicore's 98FM was also in the mix there and also, you know, it, 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 it was the market leader at one point in, in, in the early 90s and it traded places with F104 for a while um it, it's had its ups and downs as well you know it's uh it hasn't been easy for any of these stations but it, there's a lot more other players in the mix you know there's, there's Radio Nova there's Q102 Q102 which is also owned by uh, uh, wireless group and um Sunshine of course the country music station so it's, it, there's a lot there's a lot of licenses out there um and uh some people say there's too many licenses um, other people just say, well, it's all working quite, you know, fine at the moment. But really, this whole system of licences dates back to uh, an age before, mm-hmm. uh, before the current digital one that we live in now.
2: And despite the, uh, the recent, recent uh, fill up for both 2FM and Today FM, the, the trend has been downwards generally. I, is the view that, that these figures show that the market has reached the bottom or is this just a pause with more challenges ahead?
3: See, in, in, it, it's, it's a bit of both, really, because in many ways, um, radio listenership is incredibly strong in, in, in Ireland. And the industry is keen to point that out, but they're also right to point that out. The sort of 3.1 million people listen to the radio every day. It's something like 83% of the country listens to the radio every day. And, the, you know, the figure has held up okay, although it is slightly lower amongst, uh, it's in the seventy. 70% is for uh, people in Dublin and also for the 15 to 34-year-old group. So you would be kind of looking to the future and thinking you know, maybe that habit of, you know, the older people have where they listen to, for six to seven hours a day, older people they uh, have the radio on in the background, sort of almost background listening, tap listening. Um, that habit isn't necessarily transferring to the next generation. And the next generation that hasn't been captured by the research yet—the under 15s who as the head of uh, BBC Radio One has mentioned recently—you know, a lot of people establish their media habits before the age of fifteen. You know, they're, they're, they 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 um, they have their their diet almost fixed by that point. Um, so we may still see in the next few years that there's there's a bit of a, a tipping point on on listenership. Um, it is coming from a position of strength. That said, the, one of the reasons why the industry is so keen to get its figures out is that advertisers have shown signs of moving away from radio towards um, social media and, you know, devoting their ad cash in that direction rather than radio in a way that the radio industry feels doesn't really reflect its popularity. But these are, these are debates that are going on and, uh, you know, the, the forecasts were at the start of the year that the radio ad market will be down again this year. And, you know, you know, it lives and dies on advertising revenues, really, rather than a listenership. So it'll be one to watch in the next uh, two, three years.
2: Laura Slowly, thank you. Um, turning now to Ryanair. Uh, just over a month ago, the airline was wrestling with possibly its most challenging setback to date. Uh, this week, it's boasting 11% growth in net profit. Barry, are they out of the woods? Um, I, none of this really surprises me in a way, because the... You've got to
1: remember that you're talking about a period that was essentially um, up to the end of September, which was the, the first bite of the the, the the wave of cancellations that plunged the airline into a row last month. Um, I would have expected these figures always to be strong. They had a very strong August. They had a very strong July 12.5 million passengers' boat months. They also had a, a decent Easter. Um, and so, I mean... These figures are as reflexive of those facts as they are of anything else. Nonetheless, given the fact that uh, a chunk of September was marred by the big, the big row um, over cancellations, I suppose you could say it's 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 a it's a decent enough performance. Whether or not they're out of the woods, it really depends. To, you know which forest you're talking about.
2: I think you know. And, and the the profits for that first half came in at one point three billion. I think. Uh, the full year projection is between 1.4 and 1.45. That would seem to indicate that the second half is going to be considerably more challenging. It wouldn't be, obviously, the, the best half of the year for it anyway, but it does sound like it's going to be very much more challenging for the amount the numbers. Yeah, it does.
1: I mean, look, the, the second half of, of their financial year runs from the end of September to the end of March, which is basically the, the, the toughest time, uh, barring Christmas, the toughest time of the year for, for travel. All you all you really have is, is is people who have to travel and a little bit of leisure. So that certainly does look to be the picture here it tells you two things i suppose one that possibly without the problems that they ran into in september and that are now going to that the the legacy of which are now going to remain to the end of their financial year that they would have outperformed the the 1.4 to 1.45 billion Mm. um guidance that they've been giving since more or less the beginning of the current financial year um but at the same time i suppose it, it also tells you that the the, the underlying business is quite robust they're still going to hit those numbers despite the fact that they will actually carry around 2 million fewer people this year than they originally said they would
2: And Laura um, obviously reputation is everything for, for public companies a report out this week says that uh, Ryanair's reputation has actually taken taken a, a knock this time round
3: Well this was a, a, a part of a study by uh, Core Media which is uh, one of the biggest uh, buyers of advertising on behalf of its clients in Ireland and uh, Um, it does this research every month it's kind of a monthly brand tracker and it's partly designed to see how the advertising works so uh, consumers you know more than a thousand consumers are asked about 117 brands every month and for the first time in September they noticed that the 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 Ryanair sort of brand uh, sentiment uh, had turned negative negative. Um, so what, but what uh, core media does is sort of it combines a kind of a sentiment figure. So this is basically the results of people being asked to rank a brand you know on a scale of one to five with you know the visibility of the brand in the in the news or in or in ad markets that month. and the visibility was very high. Um, so a lot of people noticed the cancellation crisis story, but they didn't uh, they didn't like it.
2: And, and while Ryan, I might hope with these numbers that uh, that much of that uh, that problem is behind it. Still bubbling underneath, there is a, a, an issue with the pilots.
1: Yeah, um, the, uh, the the pilots became kind of front and centre in the crisis last month, um, but it was originally sparked by problems with rostering their holidays. Um, what the company is attempting to do, essentially, is mollify some levels of unrest by offering pay increases, various other incentives, and over the longer term is, is promising a better career path more stability, more security and is saying, and in some cases rather correctly, it has to be said that, that it's going to offer more security than, than other airlines. Um, it, it's not clear just how well this is going down with, with all pilots. 10 of its 87 bases have appa- those at 10 of its 87 bases have apparently agreed to oh. new deals with the airline um, but the airline isn't saying which bases they are. There are it's 10 of 87 so that's um, you know that that's still quite a small proportion. I'm assuming that the process is is rumbling on in the background, but we don't know how many how many pilots are involved either. And they have four thousand two hundred pilots, and in fact are recruiting more of them all the time. So it, we we need to see. But I'm assuming that if they get a breakthrough, that they will actually announce it once. They, they may actually say, well, they may reach a point where they get to a thousand or two thousand pilots, and say, well, two thousand pilots. You know, bases representing two thousand pilots have now signed up to new deals. They may not when we questioned them about it yesterday their 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 response was a very blunt. We're not commenting on ongoing negotiations with our employee representative councils. Those are the groups that represent pilots at each of their 87 bases. Um, so we we have no real clarity on where that is
2: right but but we do know from from the story that uh, pilots are increasingly a scarce resource. So it does look like Michael O'Leary and his team uh, do have st- work to do yet before they put this fully behind them.
1: They do, and they, they're bringing back uh, Peter Bell- Bellew, from, who who's a former uh, head of flight operations from um, Air Malaysia, where he's now chief executive. He starts next month, um, and his brief, essentially going from the, the announcement that Ryanair made... Uh, on this a couple of weeks ago his brief is very much to focus on pilots and very much to focus on those issues so clearly it is something that they take seriously but there is unrest there and there is a push towards a a new form of collective bargaining how strong that push is and how successful that push will be time is only going to
2: tell Thank you very much Uh, time for a short break now when we come back we talk to John O'Sullivan about Ireland's faltering bid for Rugby World Cup
3: 2023 Only 29% of us know how much we need to
0: live on in retirement Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to IrishLifeEmpower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by
3: the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015.
2: Welcome back. Uh, this time last week, Ireland was favoured to land the Rugby World Cup 2023. Today, its bid looks like it's in tatters. John O'Sullivan from our sports department joins us. John, what's gone wrong? I think the
0: bid fell down in two main areas. One was the uh, host uh, venues and cities, and the other was infrastructure. Um, the fact that a number of stadiums aren't up to spec at the moment, and this this was kind of, uh, World Rugby were advised of this beforehand, so it wasn't a new phenomenon. But um, I was describing this to somebody, and it's like, Uh, somebody coming into uh, school with uh, saying that they've done their homework but they've left it at home and the rest of the class arriving into school with their homework done. So the stadiums in South Africa and uh, France are perfect and fit for purpose as things stand. Ireland have made a promise that their stadiums will be fit for perfect and everything will be fine. Technology was another issue, which is something maybe that they could have addressed uh, in a better way uh, ahead of the inspections, if you like. You can... It's one thing to say that the the stadiums, you know, you know, you put in seats and various other aspects of that, but the technology shouldn't have been an issue and it was an issue. Uh, certainly, reading the report from World Rugby, um, they were marked down on that. Um, in, uh, if you look at the overall discrepancy in percentage terms uh, with the bid, I think it was six point seven two between Ireland and South Africa, and that accounted for four point eight. So it was a it was a significant factor in it and. Um, it's it's difficult. Ireland were also marked down because the government uh, the government promised to, to pay 120 million. Obviously, South Africa uh, promised 160 million sterling, and France 150. And there was um, beneath the, the five headings, if you like, the criteria. There are 21 subheadings uh, in which the the bids are judged, and Ireland finished outright bottom in seventh seven of those, and they finished top in six. They actually finished top or joint top in uh, more than France. France were five and South Africa were ten. Um, France were very strong on the financial side of things. Um, but even, sorry, going back to that, that um, the tournament fee, the minimum tournament fee was 120 million and that's what Ireland paid. Um, they, were, they were given 2.5 uh, points out of four, top marking of four, and South Africa were given four. Mm-hmm. So even though um, they met the minimum requirement, the fact that South Africa... Gave one hundred and sixty million was a factor or not an inconsequential factor. Now Ireland clawed it back in terms of of uh, their their proposed uh, commercial revenue and advertising and sponsorship to finish level with South Africa in terms of the financial aspect of the bid. But France were, were comfortably the, the the most appealing, if you like, to the t- uh, technical review group.
2: Mm. And obviously, I mean, we knew ahead of time that that fa- the the bottom line counts, the stadiums count. We knew what the percentages were and in, in terms of how those we, we judged. Were we a little uh, over optimistic because South Africa was the rank outsider and yet, as you say, they, they had the the infrastructure in place uh, as did France, both big countries having hosted major events previously. Um, we didn't and we're never likely to as a, it's a much smaller economy never having had to to address this sort of a sporting challenge before.
0: Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think that Fran- uh, South Africa were six to one outsiders at the, uh, you know, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So... Um, um, that is the fact that they're now 6-1 to one on uh, and Ireland are, have gone out to 12-1 to one, but the bookmakers will tell you all you need to know in terms of, of how they feel that the impact of this uh, report will be uh, in relation to the vote that takes place in London on November the 15th when um, the winning bid will require 20 of 39 votes. Um, yeah, it, it, it is surprising that Ireland finished bottom uh, of the three candidates. Uh, I think that will have come as... It, it has certainly come as a huge disappointment to the IRFU. Um, and I think it 's come as something of a little bit of a surprise, but as you rightly say, uh, in the tender process, they get uh, all the criteria on which they 're judged the weightings for those uh, criteria the five headings in particular under which they 're judged for this so it, it shouldn 't have come as a huge surprise. There are one or two aspects of it that are that are you know that the r f u will argue about afterwards one is um, security it was just something I was looking through, the finer detail of which was. Ireland, South Africa and France were given the same rating, 2.5 out of 4 for security. But there was a a line in the, or notation in the review of the Irish bid that said that they didn't give detailed enough information and therefore they didn't get a higher mark. Now that should have been something where Ireland should have had an advantage over their rivals. In very few other areas, Ireland also finished top in terms of the the concept for the World Cup and and, uh, they were better than the other two bids in that respect. But there were aspects of the bid where you where you would definitely look and say, yes, um, Ireland will be disappointed that they didn't do better. And if they weren't aware of of how this would be marked, they should have been aware of how it would be marked. And I think going back to the stadia aspect of things, the fact that only two of the eight venues are are kind of fit for purpose, if you like, if the World Cup was tomorrow. Now you, you can argue it's six years down the line, everything government funding is there, of thirty-four million, so there's no issue. Uh, and, and world rugby accept this—that there is no issue and the stadiums uh, will be uh, will be perfect for a tournament in, in six years' time. But uh, I suppose when you have the theoretical and the tangible, you tend to weigh more heavily in favour of the tangible, and that is something that that has come through loud and clear in terms of the report.
2: So we got the vision thing right, but we're not so good at the, the nuts and bolts to date. Anyway, oh, why were were we so keen to host this? Obviously, there's the glory of hosting the World Cup, but presumably there was a. It would have been attractive to Ireland Inc. on on an economic level too. Absolutely,
0: I think there is there is that aspect of it. I think from uh, it, there there are probably two different si- two different sides to this. Or it, it's um, from that perspective, you would look at it from a rugby perspective. And Ireland went to New Zealand uh, to down to New Zealand in twenty eleven for the the World Cup down there, and they looked around and said, "Well, there's no reason why we can't do this." So they commissioned Deloitte to. Uh, Produced a feasibility study when they came back, and and uh, that was reasonably promising. They went to the government. The government said, "Look, we'll have to, we'll have to go delve into this in greater detail." So that was the start of the process. So there was a, there was a, a will to try and host a World Cup. It was something they felt that was manageable, and as things transpired in the interim, if you like, it it, it gathered momentum. Um, they looked at it from every perspective, and I suppose if you look at the bottom line in the report, it says that all three countries could host a rugby world cup. So Ireland were right in that in 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 pursuing this. Um, I don't know if it's it, it's a cultural thing, but it's um, in discussion upstairs in the sports department yesterday. We were talking about this briefly, and, and we were kind of saying we have an attitude: it'll be all right on the night here, and. That doesn't cut any sway in terms of uh, the bottom line or or the balance sheet or whatever way you want to look at it from that perspective. So this was solely analytical across a number of five main criteria, twenty one subheadings. You got a mark. There, um, the only slightly we'd say emotive aspect of of um, the headings under which you were judged was your concept for the World Cup, and and Ireland did um, Ireland. Were the best of the three bids. We're just sorry. We're a judge the best of the three bids in that respect. So um, we appealed on an emotional level, but on a practical, cold kind of, uh, with the facts and figures, not so much. And the fact that both South Africa and France have hosted both rugby and soccer World Cups beforehand uh, was. Uh, a significant plus for them because they've proved that they can handle across lots of, <clears throat> of subheadings like security and, and match venues and infrastructure and, and lots of other things. They have a, a proven case. Ireland, you would have to say, because they, they haven't, for example, hosted a tournament at eight different venues simultaneously would always be more theoretically theoretical. Yes, could they do it? Yes, they could but there's no practical proof of this. And some of the weightings in, in terms of the scores that were awarded reflect that as well. That's um, that's something that's come
2: through from the report. I suppose what this report has in its merits at a time when there's all sorts of questions about how Olympics and World Cups are generally allocated, this is a fairly open and transparent process, a new process, in fact, for world rugby. And at least it's it's out there, it's published in, in, in uh, to, for everyone to see. And... Um, we still have obviously a few weeks to go for Ireland to try to plead his case, uh, however successfully or not. But to date, how much has it cost uh, Ireland, both the IRFU and, and elsewhere? I guess the bid has cost just over
0: two million. I think it's it's divided between about one point five for the government and, and a little over five hundred thousand for the IRFU um, to get where to get to the stage at which they find themselves now. Um, you're right in the sense that. If Ireland are to... I think the best case scenario for Ireland at the moment is that they get down to a head-to-head in terms of the voting process. I think if they could somehow scramble their way into a head-to-head, they would have a better chance. So basically, in London, on November the 15th, the three countries, the, the rest... There are 39 votes available, uh, and the three countries will compete for those votes. Obviously, 20 gets you uh, the 2023 Rugby World Cup. Um, if there isn't an outright winner after the first stage of voting then the uh, the uh, country with the lowest number of votes is eliminated and you vote again and it's a secret ballot and if you're looking for crumbs at the table here the fact that it's a secret ballot and if ireland could get into a head to head with another country m- might might and it's a, it's a kind of uh, i wouldn't say it's a remote possibility but it's a distant possibility then you know that they could upset the odds um one of the guys on their bid uh, team, Nick Varley, I think is his name, from 746, um, was part of the London Olympics. And he's been trying to rally the troops uh, over the last day or so and pointing out the fact that London weren't the front-runners for the 2012 Olympics and came from behind to win that. And that Rio were the f- uh, fifth uh, in fifth place of five bidders for the 2016 Olympics and came through to win. So it's there is some evidence that Ireland are not completely out of the race, but if you look at it from that persp- uh, look at it from the current perspective, based on the report, based on some of the um, some of the other countries and what they've said about who they'll vote for, for example, Steve Chu, the chief executive of New Zealand Rugby Union, has said, "Why would you have uh, a technical review group and go against their findings?" And that might be for new uh, unions and federations without a strong inkling towards one bid or another or a strong affiliation, that would seem a very practical response um, to go with, with the recommendation of Rugby World Cup Limited.
2: Of course, just just to finish up, um, South Africa, this isn't the first time at the table, they've hosted before, but equally, they've been unsuccessful applicants for the last three or four World Cups pri- prior to 2023. Correct. Uh, yep. So, uh, assuming we, we we aren't successful this time, do we... Take, take our bruised ego and come back to the table next time round or is this a, really a, an indication that small countries like Ireland really probably aren't going to get the nod for major events like this?
0: I think that's the question that, you, that the first question you would ask for rugby is are we wasting our time going forward with this? Can a small country win it? Will it always be about the money or what, what is the, the proposed maximum revenue that you can derive from something like this? Will you always go with bigger stadiums or is there a chance? If you look at New Zealand when they won the World Cup, the criteria have changed in terms of how the the uh, technical review group go about their business so New Zealand, i wouldn't say it was an aberration, but it was easier for them to do it when they when they got uh the uh, World Cup uh, about six years I think it was about two thousand and five when they when they got the nod for that in terms of of the South African aspect of things yes, they have been uh committed to bidding for the last three world cups and they've they've been unlucky in some respects, and I think if World Rugby had their time over again, this is just a personal feeling, is I think I'm not so sure that they would go to Japan. I think that the um, the issues that they have there, the fact that it appears to be overshadowed by the Tokyo Olympics in 2020, is a problem for them. Um, South Africa did a great job, and a lot of people will recall 1995 when it was a great tournament, very colourful tournament. Obviously Nelson Mandela presenting the trophy to Francois Pienaar so there was it was a very positive reflection they hosted the soccer world cup as well in 2010 it went off largely without a hitch so they have that, that there is the empirical evidence of being able to host these major tournaments and uh i think the fact that they have they've shown a committed interest over three bidding processes uh would suggest that there would be some sympathy towards them as well, having uh, lost out to New Zealand in 2011, to England in 2015, and to Japan in 2019.
2: John O'Sullivan, thank you very much. Um, that's all for this week. Um, my thanks to producer Declan and to JJ on Sound. Uh, join us again next week on Inside Business.